Shabbat Shalom. Let's turn. Shabbat Shalom. Let's turn to Ivrim, Hebrews chapter 7 this week. Now, this is actually going to be a two-part teaching. So this is going to be 7, part 1. And then next week, we're going to get into chapter 7, part 2. The reason that I'm doing that is because this truly is um, the Malkitzedic chapter What we saw in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 10 is that our author, he had to admonish his audience and say that you guys are too immature. I can't progress further in the teaching of the Malkitzedic until we address these elementary principles of the faith. You're on milk. For me to even address what he's going to address now, we've got to get you past the milk of the word and you need to get into the meat of the word. So we've had that little chapter break from chapter 5, verse 10, all the way through now, chapter 7. So this week, I'm going to put in the foundation, the foundation of chapter 7, and then next week, we'll actually get into breaking out and breaking apart the text more. But today, we're going to get, go all the way back and move forward from the Torah through the prophets into this particular chapter. So, verse 1. For this Malkitzedic, Melech of Shalem, king of Salem, Cohen, priest of El Elyon, who met Avraham returning from the slaughter of the Malachim, the kings, and he blessed him, to whom also Avraham gave a ma'aser, a tithe, First being by interpretation, Melech of Zadachar, king of righteousness. And after, the, and after that also, Melech of Shalem, king of Salem, which is Melech of Shalom, king of peace. Again, just a refresher on what our audience has listened to with the address that the author gave in chapter 5, verse 10. He says this. Called of Yahuwah, a Kohen Haggadal, after the order of Malkitzedek, about whom we have many things to say, but some of them are hard to explain, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when by this time you ought to be Maureen, you ought to be teachers, you have the need that someone teach you again the first principles of the primary writings of Yahweh, and have become those that need milk and not strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskilled in the word of Zadachah, righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are mature, even those who by reason of using the word have their senses. So, like I said, our author, he had to take pause. He had to take pause for a whole chapter. We don't know how long that was in the reality of the time. It could have been months. While he educated them and brought them along and said, you have to move past these elementary principles. And quite honestly, this is where we find the institutionalized church today. They are stuck on the elementary principles of Christ. You can go to church for 25 years and you will still be in the milk of the word. 
learning about baptism, that you're saved, and that the blood of Christ, and resurrection. And continue to rehash that with various little cute sermons for years upon years upon years. And that's not saying that isn't true. But this is the milk of the word that we have to progress past. Because otherwise you'll meet your friends 10 years later when you've come out of the institutionalized church system. And they're still drinking the same sermons. And you're like, you haven't progressed. We should be persevering and pursuing the faith in righteousness each and every day, challenging one another in the word. And that's what this ministry does. And we've had many complaints that we challenge people in the word. And that we do do that, but we're not afraid because quite honestly, we believe that in the multitude of the body, we can reason together and we become like iron that sharpens iron. And we become sharper by looking and exploring in what we call here in the ministry, biblical exploration. So... This is really, really important that we understand the history, the context, and that our author had to admonish the audience. He had to take a break from what we're going to get into today. Now, what I'm going to teach on today, many of you right before me, you've heard before. But I want to admonish you not to switch off if you have done Because I want you to realize that if you have heard this before, then understand this. You are the called. You are the blessed. Because if you have heard and understood what is going to be taught today, then you are digesting meat as if it were milk. And what you need to do today then is to really listen to really get this understanding deep down inside of you so that then you can take up the task to go out and do what? Teach it to others. And that's how this message goes. But first, you have to get it deep so down in you that you can understand it, that when you communicate it, others can learn. And sometimes that takes a marination. So use this as a marination period. If you have heard this before, of course, we've got a whole audience out there that hasn't. And this will be an introduction to the Malkitsedic. So we can see in our text, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, that the author speaks of something that was very common to his audience, but is very uncommon to our Western institutionalized church audience today. So much so that they would have little grasp of what he's talking about. But for those of you that do, then this is you eating the meat of the word and digesting it as if it's milk. But to others, this will be afresh. Let's turn and look at the source text Genesis, Bereshit, chapter 14, and verse 17 is what our author is referencing when he is talking about Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Genesis, Bereshit, 14, verse 17. 
Then, after his return from the defeat of Shedolomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevar. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of El Elyon, Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of Elohim Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be El Elyon Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. Now it's interesting, little side note here. This is the first reference in the Tanakh of the Hebrew word ma'aser, the tithe. I don't often teach on tithing because I believe we're a mature audience. We should have the conviction and the maturity to know. But this is where tithing comes from. Many people will teach about tithing and they'll teach it in this Levitical mindset. But we're not to tithe according to the Levitical mindset. That was later on. The reference of tithing, ma'aser, begins here. And it is a tenth of all. For us, whatever we get and we plunder from the New World Order... We give a tenth of all, off the gross, off the top. That's what it means. We plunder and we give a tenth of all. So this is where it comes from. Is this still for us today? If we're in the order of Malkitzedek, then yes, it is. This is what we're to do. This is what we see right here. And it is about what? Yahuwah needs the money. Yahuwah, the kingdom needs the money. No, it's ultimately about what? Your own spiritual health, faithfulness, and the condition of your inner person. It's called release and relinquish and multiplicity. And it brings huge blessing, but there is huge responsibility with that charge that we all have, that we all have. But this is the first reference to the ma'aser, the tithe. So from whenever we talk about tithing, this is the point of origin that we would go back to. One-tenth of all that you plunder from the New World Order. Does that make sense? So let's see as we go forth and we read more. He delivered your enemies into your hands... And he gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have, I have sworn to the El Elyon, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except that the young men have eaten and share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamri. Let them take their share. So here we see that Malkitzedek received a tenth of the spoils of Abram's victory against Shedoloma. Now we'll turn and jump into the prophet's and we begin to build as we now turn to Tehillim, Psalm 110. 
Now, Yahweh said to my Adon, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Yahweh shall send a rod, a scepter of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power, in the splendors of your set-apartness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. Yahweh has sworn, and he will not lie so as to repent. You are a priest forever and ever, after and in the order of Malkitzedek. Verse 5, Yahweh at your right hand shall shatter kings in the day of his anger. Now, I want to make reference to verse 5 here because you'll see if you've got the King Jimmy or a modern translation, there'll be a Masoretic edit here where they will put the Lord or Adon. But what we see in verse 5, it actually says, Yahuwah is at your right hand. So verse 5 actually qualifies verse 1. So verse 5 instructs us that in fact, it is none other than Yahuwah who sits at the right hand of Yahuwah. We see the brilliance of the text right here that's covered up by the Masoretic edit. But you can see right here, Yahuwah at your right hand shall shatter kings. What was our text about in Genesis 14? It was about the shattering of the kings, was it not? So as we read on, in the day of his anger, he shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the leaders over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in its way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Now we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 5. And verse 5, and I will thread this all together for you. Hebrews 5, verse 5. So also Moshiach did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Hebrews is referencing not only Genesis 14, but also referencing Psalm 110 in the matrix of our understanding of the Melchizedek. We have to understand the source text. This is important. This Greek word, the phrase comes up as katar, Ton taxine. Katar ton taxine Malkizedek, and it means the order, as in a sequential ordering of things, in the proper sequence or array of Malkizedek. So Malkizedek is an order, it's a sequence of things in its proper array. 
This is the understanding that we need to grasp as we now go into Hebrews chapter 7. So when the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, order comes up in the Hebrew with a Hebrew word that's very interesting. Some of us are very familiar with it. It's the Hebrew word debra. Debra meaning order. But the word is only used five times total in the whole of the Tanakh. Four other times apart from in Psalm 110 verse 4. And it means to put in order, but Debra comes from Debar, meaning by speaking. To put in order by speaking. By speaking a sequence or ordering of something. This is translated into the Greek, and it means the same thing when we come to the taxine, the order sequencing of something. So taxine in the, he- in the Greek means the order or sequence of something. The word in the Hebrew, we see again this debra, from Debar, speaking the word an order or sequence. Now, we start to dig deeper because we should be able to find some other references to others in this order, in this priesthood, in the scripture, either before or after Melchizedek, if it is so that there is an order, a sequential ordering of this priesthood. Does that make sense? Let's dig in and see. In fact, where else in the Bible do we find a reference to a person whose king is righteous? Whose king is righteous in the Hebrew is Malki or Melech is king, Zadik. Our king is righteous. So Malkitzedek really means our king is righteous, is the proper translation. Our king is righteous. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Now, when I read this, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, you may notice that I read it a little different. Because we have to understand the Greeks, we have... Greek, there is no grammar in Greek. So I'm going to read it without the King James added grammar. I'm going to read a literal translation without the added grammar. Because when the King James translators added grammar, they were adding what? They were adding their interpretation of the text. We're going to remove the monkey monks funky monk's interpretation and just go with what it literally says. So I'll read it literally. It sounds a little different. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 4. For if Eloah's messengers who sin did not spare, but with chains of thick gloom, having cast them down to Tartarus, did deliver them to judgment, having been reserved, and the old world did not spare, but the eighth person, Noah, of righteousness, a preacher, 
did keep a flood on the world of the impious having brought, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah having turned to ashes. So I'm going to repeat that last section for you. But the eighth person, Noah of righteousness, that is Zadik, a preacher, so he was a preacher of the Zadik, did keep a flood on the world of the impious having brought and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah having turned to ashes. Now notice, the passage doesn't say that there were seven others that were saved with Noah as you're taught. It doesn't say that though, does it? We have to insert that into the text. It doesn't say that. What it does say is that Noah was the eighth preacher of righteousness. It's right there for you. Noah was the eighth Malkizedek. He was the eighth Malkizedek. And we're talking about something in the order sequentially that was spoken. Would it have been spoken through an oath? Well, we'll find in the book of Hebrews that this Malkizedek is a matrix of the oath. Now, in the King Jimmy, they at least have the decency, and I do appreciate this about the King Jimmy. I really do. They at least have the decency to italicize stuff when it's not really in there. Now, in the NIV, they just abandon it whatsoever. I mean, they don't care. The pastors don't care, and the people in the pews don't care. But at least with the King Jimmy, there was a concern that, you know, well, we should have, we, we should, you know, be transparent enough to, to let you know that we, we we're adding a bunch of stuff into the Bible that's not actually there. The NIV, 1970s, people aren't paying attention anyway. They won't notice a thing. And they don't notice a thing. The King James does, in fact, italicize one of eight people. So... Who were the previous seven? If Noah was the eighth preacher of righteousness, the eighth Malkitzedek, and it's a, a sequential order of things, then who were the previous seven? Now, this can't be saying that Noah was the eighth generation of man, because some will come up with that argument. But he wasn't. He was the 10th generation of mankind, so it's not talking about that. First of all, there was Adam. Then there was Seth. Then there was Enosh. Fourth, there was Canaan. Fifth, there was Mahalel. Sixth, there was Jared. Seventh, there was Enoch. Eighth, there was Methuselah. Ninth, there was Lamech. And the 10th in generation was Noah. So it cannot be talking about that. How could Noah be the eighth? He's not. He's the tenth in the generation. Part of the Malkitzedic mystery is that while Noah isn't the eighth generation of mankind, Noah is the eighth in the line of succession, beginning with Adam, of preachers of righteousness. Noah was in fact the eighth Malkitzedek. He was the eighth Malkitzedek. Now remember, Yochanan, John says, death reigned from Adam to Moshe. 
What does that mean? Nobody died after Moshe Rabbeinu? Well, that, that's simply not so. What it's talking about is the reign of the Malkizedeks. The reign of the Malkizedeks, they lasted so long and then they died and then there was another succession in the line of the Malkizedeks. The first Malkizedek was Adam. The last Malkizedek was Moses who was up on the mountain receiving the book of the covenant, Exodus 19, while Israel was whoring down at the golden calf. Even Aaron was whoring down at the golden calf, practicing his goldsmithing. And Yahweh said, you know what? I will cause genocide, commit genocide on the whole of Israel. I don't need them. I'll start over with you because you are the Malkizedek that's undefiled. And that's what Yahweh was going to do. That was his perfect plan A. But Moshe Rabbeinu, in his mercy, as a mediator, intercedes with Yahweh and pleads with Yahweh that he wouldn't commit genocide on the whole of Israel. So Yahweh relents and he adds the imposed, not agreed to, book of the law of carnal commandments as a tutor to minister over Israel. Now they're no longer a kingdom of priests, but they are a what? A nation with a priest. Big difference, and they have to shed animal blood and animal blood and animal blood until the time of Reformation when the seed would come, the final Malkizedek, and he would pay the death penalty position of Genesis 15, the covenant through the pieces, and he would restore Israel back to royal covenant Torah, the Sabbath, the feasts, and the dietary requirements, not the Levitical hierarchy, which was a tutor until the time of Reformation. This is the narrow road that leads to life. You see, the church has just gone lawless and syncretized everything pagan into it. The Messianic Hebrew roots is so Torah, Torah, Torah that they don't realize that they're picking and choosing commandments yet not keeping the commandments and they're like, well, we have to wait for a Jewish temple and then we'll start sacrificing animals again. Not understanding 2 Timothy 2.15 that we are to rightly divide the word of Torah. That's a lot to take in right there, but it's a huge, huge teaching that we are digesting. It's the meat. But right here we see that Noah is the eighth Malkizedek, that Moshe Rabbeinu was the last Malkizedek that was under the administration of royal covenant Torah or the book of the covenant, Exodus 19. Then the covenant was broken with the sin of the golden calf. Then was the imposed book of the law, that was a mediator, a tutor to Israel until Yeshua would be the final Malkizedek that would usher in the new covenant that Jeremiah tells us is royal book of the covenant Torah. We're to do the Torah of Abraham, not the Torah of Aaron and Levi. That's the distinction. That's the narrow road that leads to life. That's the narrow road that leads to life. So you've got 
messianic and Judaism on one side of the fence, some denying Yeshua, some upholding Yeshua, but it is still Levitical Torah. Then you've got the institutionalized church on the other side of the fence doing lawlessness and pagan syncretism. And the narrow road that leads to life is the Malkitzadik paying the death penalty position that returns you back to the Torah of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who never knew a Levite. Genesis 1-1 all the way through to Exodus 24-12, which is the Sabbath, the feasts, healthy biblical diet for the children of Israel. Restoration for the royal kingdom principles of royal covenant Torah. It's amazing stuff, but as we get into this meat, you can see why many, many would choke on it because they're used to the milk. That's why he had to take this break. Now, Let's look at the eight Malkizedics. Adam lived for 930 years from creation until his death. Adam was the first Malkizedic. When Adam died, Seth was the next Malkizedic in succession. When Seth died, Enosh was the third Malkizedic. When Enosh died, Canaan was the fourth Malkizedic. When Kenan died, Mahalel was the fifth Malkitzedek. When Mahalel died, Jared was the sixth Malkitzedek. When Jared died, Methuselah took his place because why? Enoch had been taken, Genesis 5.24, and therefore skipped in the line of succession. And when Methuselah died... Noah became the eighth Malkitzedek because Lamech had already died. He was the eighth, just as we see in the account of the Brit, the New Testament. Noah, a preacher of righteousness, a preacher of the Malkitzedek, was eighth in line of succession of the order of Malkitzedek. 2 Peter 2, 5. Eighth from Adam. Isn't this amazing stuff? So if Noah, as the preacher of righteousness, the preacher of the Malkitzedek, righteousness in the Hebrew is Zadik, Zadik. If he was the eighth preacher of righteousness from his generation, then who was in the sequence of Malkitzedekan priests who was serving in this priesthood when Avraham, rescued Lot and gave a tenth to the Malkitzedek. Well, who was that Malkitzedek? That's what we need to discover. Noah was the eighth, and when he died, his son Shem would have been the next in line for the Malkitzedek. In fact, the book of Yasha which is mentioned three times in Scripture, confirms, in fact, that Shem was the Malkitzedek. Now, now that I've mentioned that, they'll all come out of the woodwork and they'll want to take me to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3 and start having problems with that. Brother in the back, whenever you try and teach righteousness, holiness, all these come out of the woodwork and it's wild. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I read the same thing 
You speak truth, then it's amazing. People who don't want truth will just come out of the woodwork to try and distract from the message. So I just mentioned that I believe that Shem was the Malkitzedek at the time that Abraham was at the slaughter of the kings. And those that would come out of the woodwork would now take us to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, and say, well, hang on a minute. So let's address that. Let's skip forward just a bit now that I've mentioned that Shem is the ninth Malkitzedic. People are going to want to have some clarity on Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, which says that Malkitzedic was what? He had no genealogy. Shem's got a genealogy. And this is called a surface reading of the text because you're used to drinking milk. But we have to understand, a text out of context creates a pretext and error begets error. I love saying that because that was the clarion call back in the church. And that's finally what caused many to push me out the way, you know, because... That was what it was all about, taking texts out of context. And the next thing you know, you're lit at a Bible study. Oh, and tomorrow's the Super Bowl. So somehow that would get into the Bible study. And you'd be like, what? Right? I don't know how many times at Calvary Chapel on a Sunday sermon I heard about Survivor worked into the text. Yeah. Because, again, I've got to make it relative and kind of current to the culture. Crazy stuff. Let's have a look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. We have to understand that Hebrews is juxtaposing the Levitical order with the Malkitzedic order. So when Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3 says that the Malkitzedic is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, this does not disqualify Shem, because this is not what people think it is talking about. It's talking about the Malkitzedics are not listed in the Levitical genealogies. The Malkitzedics are not listed in the Levitical genealogies. No record of any of their parents being from Levi are recorded, since neither was a priest in the order of Levi. Slow it down. What's the whole context going on about? It's juxtaposing the Levitical order against the Malkitzedic order, and you slow things down, and you don't disqualify Shem being the ninth Malkitzedic. Shem meaning name. It's amazing. Neither Shem nor Yahusha has beginning of days nor end of a priestly Levitical life, do they? Since neither was ordained to begin with or end with in that Levitical service. Yet both. Yet both do have genealogies listed in Scripture. Shem, like Yahusha, served in the eternal order and positionally he prefigured Yahusha, who serves in that same eternal order that can never, never pass away. The book of Hebrews doesn't say Shem is immortal. 
Rather, that he lives continually, as do all the Zadigs, all of the righteous. We will live continually in redemption, right? We will live continually in redemption. Hebrews 11 goes into this in much detail later on. Shem was the ninth Malkitzedek in the line of succession of the Malkitzedek order. So that is what is said here. He lives on in Ruach, in spirit, as his reward for being a partaker of the covenants of promise, Ephesians 2.12. And we'll learn much more about that as we digest more and more of the meat. So what was actually going on Back in Genesis 14, between the meeting of Shem and Malkitzedek and Avraham. Avraham had just defeated four kings. Amraphel, Arioch, Shedaloamar, remember that name, Shedaloamar, and Tidal. They'd made war against Sodom and they'd taken his nephew Lot captive. King Shedolomar is mentioned in the meeting of Zedek and Avram. Genesis 14 verse 17 through 20. Then after Avram's return from the defeat of Shedolomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom actually went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva which means King's Valley. We have a King's Valley just down the road. Genesis, Bereshit 14, verse 18. And Malkitzedek, king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of El Elyon Most High. He blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram of Elohim Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And he blessed him and he blessed be Elohim Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a ma'aser, a tenth of all. Why aren't the kings mentioned by name? Why is only Shedalomar mentioned? Genesis 14, verse 17. Why is it only Shedolomar that is mentioned? It's because Shedolomar was a descendant of Shem, the Malkitzedek. Shedolomar was king of Elam, Genesis 14, 1 and 14, 9. And Elam was a son of Shem, Genesis 10, verse 22. Avram was also a descendant of Shem through Afraxad. So we've got two descendants of the Malkizedek that are making war. This is what's going on in the context of Hebrews chapter 7 is referencing back to in Genesis 14. And Avraham had just done what? He had just killed a descendant of Shem. He himself being a descendant of Shem. He had just killed Shedalomar, one of Shem's descendants through Elam in battle. Shem, the Malkitzedek, shows up to make peace with Avram in the midst of this family feud. 
the Malkitzedic shows up to make peace because there is this war within the family, a family feud. Avram makes peace with him. Why and how? By giving him a tenth of all of the spoils. It's a family feud. That's what's going on in Bereshit, Genesis 14. Avraham, a descendant of the Malkit Zedek Shem, killed Shedolomar, another descendant of the Malkit Zedek Shem. And there is an exchange of tithe and bread and wine so that there is Malkit Zedek bringing Shalom to a situation with a war amongst kings. But this is prophecy, because this now will echo all the way forward into our day to tell you and I what in the hell is going on in the globe today. Because ultimately, you're going to see it right here in Bereshit chapter 14. But before, let's go to Psalm chapter 2 verse 1 to give more clarification to what in the hell is going on today. Now, of course, Psalm chapter 2 verse 1 is a Malkitzedic psalm. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. It's quoted again in Hebrews chapter 5. And it explains what is happening with the kings of the earth in Genesis 14. They took counsel against Yahuwah and they took counsel against his Malkitzedic. That's what happened with the kings of the earth in Bereshit 14. The kings of the earth, they took counsel against the Malkitzedic. They took counsel against Yahuwah and there was a war. This is now explained in Psalm chapter 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? There is going to be millions and billions, most probably billions, I imagine billions, of people wasting their life, and I'm sorry this offends you, imagining a vain thing tomorrow. I do get to talk about the Super Bowl. I mean, but really, and I've spoken about this before, but it's like, that's all I've heard for the past week. A vain thing of muscled men in spandex chasing pig skin, eating pig, and it's insanity to me. Because what's happened is it's the emasculation of the American male. So that now we have to watch gladiators so that we can feel masculated while they put fluoride in the water, shrink your... and all of that type of stuff. I mean, really. What did you read me yesterday, Tamara, from the dentist? As part of a healthy diet of fruit and vegetables, incorporating fluoride into your healthy diet will help your dentine. I mean, they've so dumbed down the population that they literally are shrinking their... So, man, thank you, manhood. And then they parade these gladiators before the world and bring in Beyonce to entertain you with occult 
satanic rituals. Again, Shield's doing it again, apparently, tomorrow. It's so sad to me because it truly is so popular. It's spoken about at the water coolers and the coffee shops. And in the meantime, when you and I talk about Malkit Zedek, Yahweh, Yahusha, and the Holy Word, people just are not interested. Not interested. But they're interested about their idols and their gods that are playing before masses tomorrow. It truly is idolatry. It's idolatry, plain and simple. And if Abraham was around, he would go and smash those idols down. And he would say, it's time to leave. It's time to cross over and plant yourself in some much better soil that's going to produce a much better crop. Don't waste your time doing things that the nations do. Spend that time in prayer, in study, and in word. That's what we should be doing. We don't have time to mess around with that type of stuff. We really don't. Psalm chapter 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The Melachim, the kings of the earth, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahuwah and against his Messiah, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Break the traditions of the fathers is what they're talking about. Let's break the traditions of the fathers. Cast their cords from us. Break the traditions of the fathers from us. What traditions? The traditions of the Malkitzedic fathers. Adam, Seth, Enosh, etc. Noah, etc. The Hebrew word here for cast away their cords is the Hebrew word mauser. It comes from the Hebrew word yasar and it means customs. That which is intertwined and passed down from generation to generation. They wanted to break the customs and the traditions of Malkitzedek that were passed down from generation to generation to generation. Does the world today want to break down our family traditions of holiness and righteousness that we pass down from generation to generation to generation? Through the word of Yahweh. That is what they are doing from the time you send your children, hopefully you don't, to the public re-education centers. They want to break down the family traditions. The biblical traditions of righteousness that are instilled from grandparents to parents to children to great-grandchildren and then on more and more and more. And we say, We'll make war against you for trying to do that. We will stand up and say, no, you cannot have our children. No, you cannot have our great-grandchildren. No, we will not let, let you cast, cast their cords asunder. So we can see right now as we get into the text of Psalm chapter 2 verse 4. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. Yahweh shall have them in derision. Now in the context of Genesis 14, did he have the kings in derision? He did. He had four against five. He had them in derision. 
Then shall he speak to them in his anger and trouble them in his heavy displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy mountain of Zion. I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said to me, you are a son. This day have I brought you forth. Ask of me and I shall give to you the nations, the nations for your inheritance and the farthest parts of the earth for your possession. You see, because Abraham made shalom, peace, with the Malkit Zedek, in the very next verses we see that Avram was given the promise of kingship, land, and the Malkit Zedek line. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, the war, the war, bringing it all the way forward to our day today, the war between the seed of Abraham, the sons of Isaac and Jacob, and the sons of Ishmael is because what? Why is there a war right now between the sons of Jacob and the sons of Ishmael? The sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael. Why are we seeing this in Europe? Why are we seeing this huge migration that is supported by the nations? Angela Merkel totally capitulated to the new world order as they're, they're flooding in, the migrants flooding in. The Swedes... Just open the Danes. I mean, Europe is going to hell in a handbasket. It's gone to hell in a handbasket because they've allowed the sons of Ishmael to come in that triumphantly are waging war against what? Believers. Biblical values. The sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael. Why? Why is this happening? Because Isaac received the Malkizedek over Ishmael. There's vexing, there's jealousy. Isaac received the Malkizedek over Ishmael. It's really a war in our generation between the Malkizedek, but they don't know that they're the Malkizedek. They've been so dumbed down by the New World Order and the institutionalized church that in Europe, I'm telling you, because I'm a product of it, the church in Europe is dead. My local cathedral in my town was 900 years old. The bar in the local pub was 300 years old that everyone burnt with their cigarettes and spilt their beer over. My mum can never quite understand when she comes over to America and my wife wants to take her to some museum. It's like a museum, like the, some house here in Salem. Deepwood. And my mum's like, why do we want to go and look round somebody's house? Well, it was in 1860. Well, my grandmother's house was in 1820. Why do we want to look around some old person's house? Because, you see, you have no context of history in the context of history. All that to say this, I grew up in a society where the church is 
dead. There are cathedrals that are 900 years old that are void of people. Europe, the gospel message has been crushed by the globalists in the new world order. This is the last stronghold. This is the last stronghold. Yes, of of the message, of the message. Europe is dead, and that's why it's being overrun, because they don't understand their identity. There is a war between the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac who don't even realize that they have the inheritance of the Malkitzedic priesthood. There is a war between the Malkitzedic and the Caliphs. That's what it is. It's a war between the Malkitzedic and the Caliphs versus the bishops and the popes and the presidents. They're all into one. But the Malkitzedic is the one that will raise up because ultimately we see from Genesis 14 and Psalm chapter 2 verse 1 is that Shem died. Then Eber would have been next in line. And after Eber would have been Isaac. Would have been Isaac. And after Isaac would have been Jacob. And so on. We find that this line likely went from Jacob through to Levi. Because death reigned from Adam to Moshe. And later we find that Solomon, Shlomo, described himself as what? A preacher of righteousness. He was the preacher of the Malkit Zedek, even though he couldn't institute it because the covenant was broken and Solomon was under the ordinance, the imposed, not agreed to book of the law, and he had to wait until the final Malkit Zedek could come and return them back to covenant, covenant Torah. There's so much for us to see. Let's go now into the Brit Hadashah and see how this whole Malkitzedic plays out. Because you have to be a priest first before you can offer a sacrifice. The high priest stands to officiate over the sacrifice and only once that sacrifice is fully consumed can he sit down. He has to wait until... It is finished so that he can sit down. You see, prophets have a divine message. Priests have an altar and a sacrifice. And kingdoms, they need a king. Let's see how Yahushua filled all these roles as prophet, priest, and king in perfect sequencing. And he's able to provide our redemption. You see... If you and I believe in the Malkitzedic priesthood, then it is open to all of circumcised heart today. We know in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, the writer of the book of Matthew himself goes into much length to establish Yahushua as what? A king. He goes into much description to establish in Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2 that Yahushua is the Melech. He is the king. He is the king. But the mantle of priesthood, the mantle of priesthood was always handed down through ritual immersion, mikvah, or what's called in the Greek baptism. 
The Jordan River was a place of geographic change. It was a point of change. And we have to remember this because principalities, they study your generations and they operate geographically. Principalities study your generations. They try and find the weak links in your generations. Grandpa was an alcoholic. Grandpa was a whoremonger. So therefore, you have to be careful, study your generations so that you can go to battle against the principalities and then be very careful where you locate yourself geographically because there are places that are geographic strongholds for principalities that operate there. Have to be careful. You have to be careful. So we know that Yahushua was born king of the Jews. Matthew 2, verse 2, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Yahushua must fulfill now all righteousness through a legal high priest. And we're now going to see that the legal high priest at the time of Yahushua was not Caiaphas. That position had been bought and sold. The legal high priest was actually out in the desert eating locusts and honey. I want to try that with our children. Homeschool project. Great homeschool project right there. Definitely some hot salsa. We can get some locusts. Go to the pet stop shop. I'm going to do this. I really am. We're going to get some live locusts, maybe some almond um, oil or something, start frying that up, and um, some Tabasco or some, maybe even put a little Marmite or something in there just to give it a little saltiness. That'd be good. And we'll toss them. Judah, are you down for this? You can help me. We'll toss those puppies in there live and just see them pop and crack. And um, I think that is going to be a, that's going to be a children's homeschool project, Torah to the Tribes for um, one of these uh, lessons. I'll take a break and I'll do it in the next room. Are you up for that? I think that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of honey in there. Date honey, maybe. We'll do some date honey. I love date honey. Hey, get back on the word for crying. Sorry. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. We're now establishing that Yahushua was born a king, but we're looking to see this high priesthood transference. We know that Yochanan Hamatbil, John the Immerser, is in fact the legitimate high priest because we know through the line that his parents were descendants of Aaron, that he was in fact a descendant of Aaron. Then came Yahushua, Matthew 3, verse 13, from Galilee to the Jordan River. To Yochanan to be immersed by him. But Yochanan, he forbade him, saying, I have need to be immersed by you, and you come to me. And Yahushua answering said to him, Allow it to be so now, for this will allow us to fulfill all righteousness. Whatever I want you to do right now by this immersion, this is going to allow us to bring in the fullness of the Zadik. 
I'm already a Melech, I'm already a king, but now you must immerse me into the water for this positional transference of priesthood to take place. It has to happen by the legitimate Levitical or Aaronic high priest, who's not Caiaphas, but who is John the Baptist. So he goes, Yahushua goes into the water as the Melech, Matthew 1 and 2, already established, and then he comes up out of the water fulfilling all Zadokar, he now is the transferred high priest after the order spoken of by John of Malkitzedek. Goes into the water, the Melech, comes up the Melech Zadik, the Malkitzedek, done by a Levitical, ironic high priest, John the Baptist himself. This is a legal transference that happens at the Jordan River, a point of change. Right, This is huge because now we have the final Melchizedek in his position of authority, ordained and immersed, and he's about to now usher in something that you and I are the recipients of. The covenants of promise are now going to be available to us, Ephesians 2.12. We were strangers and far off. We were aliens to the covenants of promise. But now we can be a part of them because of this transference that happens right here. This is amazing. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11. If their perfection, the Greek word there is teleos, meaning the goal. If the goal could have been reached by the Levitical priesthood, we know it couldn't. But if the goal could have been reached by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the book of the law, the Torah, what further need was there for another priest that should arise? After the order of Melchizedek. And not be called after the order of Aaron. For the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity, a change of the Torah. The priesthood needed to be transferred. There must therefore be a transference of the priesthoods from the Levitical to the Melchizedek order. And it happened right there with Yochanan, Hamat Beel, John the Immerser, and Yahushua at the River Jordan. Matthew 3.13 is where the transference of the Levitical priesthood to the Melchizedek priesthood occurred between two kinsmen. John the Baptist and Yahushua. The mantle of priesthood had to be handed down through mikvah ritual immersion and the Jordan River is the point of change. But if Yahushua is now the legitimate high priest, what about the Levitical high priest who's still up masquerading as the legitimate one in Jerusalem? What are we going to do with Caiaphas? Because now Yahushua is the biblically legitimate high priest. It was transferred through the biblically legitimate Levitical high priest, John the Baptist, who was so ashamed of what was going on at the temple that he wouldn't have anything to be a part of it. He was in the desert. He should have been in the temple. He should have been ministering over the sacrifices, but he would rather be in the desert because he knew that that was a corrupt, sold-out, hoard-out priesthood. Sold out to Caiaphas. It had been sold out for 240 years, from the Hasmoneans all the way through to the Herodians, and now the Romans. And he didn't want anything to do with it. 
And his message that he proclaimed in the desert was a very important message, a very important message. We've got a problem. We have to deal with Caiaphas. Now let's visit, before we deal with Caiaphas, let's visit the Torah background for the qualifications of the high priest. Let's visit the trespass offering and how this affects Yahusha's qualifications. Let's turn to Leviticus, Leviticus Vaikra, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the trespass offering. And if a being sins and hears the voice of swearing and is a witness, whether he has seen or known it, if he does not reveal it, then he shall bear his iniquity. What is this talking about? If someone swears this oath in Leviticus chapter 5, and you or I hear them, and we're a witness of it, and we know the truth, and we keep quiet, and we don't reveal the truth, then we're in sin, and we will bear the iniquity. That's what this means. If somebody puts you under the oath of the trespass offering, and you know the truth to a matter, but you don't speak it, you have to speak it, and you have to reveal it. If you keep quiet, then you are in sin, and you will bear your own iniquity. It's very important that we understand that. Leviticus now, Vaikra chapter 10, verse 6. Let's turn there. And Moshe said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons, uncover not your heads, neither tear your clothes, lest you die. He's talking to the priests. You rip your garments, you annul your priesthood, you're worthy of death. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? You rip your garments, you annul your priesthood, you're worthy of death. So, Yahweh, in his mercy, he gives you a clothing provision. Exodus chapter 28, verse 32. And there shall be a hole on the top of it. This is the priestly garment. And in the midst of it, it shall have a binding of woven work all around the whole of it, as it were the whole of strong armor that it be not torn. Because Yahweh has put in this provision, it's called rachamin, mercy. He knows that if the priests inadvertently rip their garment, then they are worthy of death and it nullifies their priesthood. They cannot be priests. So he puts an armor of woven work around the neck to reinforce it so that there is no unintentional ripping of the garment, nullifying the priesthood, and then you're worthy of death. Now let's turn and deal with Caiaphas, Matichahu, Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. And they that had laid hold of Yahusha, they led him to Caiaphas, the Kohen Haggadah, the high priest. 
where the Sophrim and the Zachanim, the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Kepha, Peter, followed him from far off to the Kohen Haggadol, the high priest's palace. And he went in and he sat in with the Avadim, the elders, to see the result. Now the main Kohanim, the main priests, and the Zachanim, the elders, and all the Sanhedrin, they saw false witnesses against Yahusha. They put him to death. They, saw, they sought, excuse me, false witnesses against Yahusha to put him to death. But none were found. Yes, though many false witnesses came forth, yet, yet they found none. And at the end came two false witnesses. And verse 61, and they said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the Bet Hamikdash, the temple of Eloah, and to build it up in three days. And the Kohen Haggadol, the high priest, this is Caiaphas, he stood and he said to him, Don't you respond? Aren't you going to say anything? What is all this that these witnesses have said against you? But Yahusha, he kept silent. And the Kohen Haggadol, the high priest, answered and said to him, I put you under oath before the living Eloah that you tell us whether you are the Moshiach, the Messiah, the Son of the Almighty. So Yahushua wasn't saying a thing. So Caiaphas like, I know how to get him to say something because he knows the Torah. I put you under the oath of the trespass offering. You must tell me if you are the Messiah, the Son of the Almighty. If you don't say anything, then you are in sin and your iniquity is upon you. If he's in sin, then he cannot be our Messiah, correct? He cannot be our Messiah. He cannot be sinless if he does not answer this question. It can't be what Caiaphas says. It actually has to come out of Yahushua's mouth. And now you'll notice why he says these exact words. And Yahushua said to him, you have said it. But that's not good enough, is it? It's not good enough that Caiaphas has said it. He has to say it. So now he makes this clarification. You have said it. Nevertheless, now I say it unto you. After this, you shall see the Benadam, the son of man, sitting, Psalm 110, at the right hand of Yahuwah and coming in the clouds of the Shamayim, the heavens. Then the high priest, the Kohen Haggadol, Caiaphas, tore his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What just happened? Caiaphas, in front of Yahushua, in front of a multitude of witnesses. They must have gone, oh no. He now has nullified his high priesthood. He is worthy of death. You've got to ask yourself the question. Who was the high priest? priest who was going to officiate over the Passover sacrifice the very next day. Who was it? There wasn't one. 
There was no high priest after the order of Aaron who was able to officiate legitimately by Yahweh's Torah over the sacrifices. Null and void before witnesses. Because the sacrifice that mattered that year was not going to be under the order of Aaron. Yahusha officiated over his own sacrifice under and after the order of Malkitzedek because the priesthood of Aaron was void. Void right there and then. Right there and right then. Disqualified. He should die. Caiaphas should die, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 6. His priesthood is nullified, and there is no one to offer the sacrifice and officiate over the morning sacrifice, and there's nobody to officiate over the park, Passover sacrifice. No one but the Malkitzedek himself. What further need of you of witnesses, Caiaphas says? See now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is guilty of death. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. They've got Caiaphas before them, who is the one who is guilty of death. And they're actually saying that the Malkizedek, who is the legitimate high priest, is guilty. That is how our world is, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? Exactly, exactly. They murder, they murder, they murder. The new world order, they murder. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 20. And as much as he, Yahushua, the Malkitzedek, was not made priest without an oath, What? It says it right here, doesn't it? He was not made priest without an oath. Hebrews 7.20, For they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him. How did Yahushua become a priest? He became a priest, the high priest. In fact, this is speaking of three oaths in sequential order. First and foremost, there is the oath given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, an unconditional covenant oath. It speaks of that. Secondly, there is the oath of Psalm 110. And thirdly and finally, before men, Yahushua was put under the oath of the trespass offering, which ultimately was a clarification of the qualification of his high priesthood and the annulling of the Levitical high priesthood all by the sequential order of the oaths, Genesis 12, Psalm 110, and Matthew chapter 26. How many times do you just read over this cursory and not realize the depth and the magnitude and the meat that needs to be digested there? Selah. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 28. For the Torah makes men koanim, Gedolim, who have human weaknesses. But the word of the oath, which was after the Torah, appointed the Son who has been perfected forever and ever. Remember, when the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, order 
is the Hebrew word debra, and it literally means to be put in order through speaking. Speaking an oath, the oath sequence of ordering Genesis 12, Psalm 110, and Matthew 26. Yahushua now is the legitimate high priest who is officiating over his own sacrifice. But we have to be careful. John chapter 19, verse 23. Remember what we, wrote, we read in Vaikra, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 6. How does the priesthood get annulled? By the tearing of the garments. So now the gospel writers are going to make us very, they want to make some real clarity here that Yahushua is the legitimate high priest and they don't want any misunderstanding. So they're going to go at pains descriptively to point this out to you based upon what Caiaphas did to ensure you that Yeshua is secure all the way through to his magnification, glorification at the right hand of Yahuwah. Yochanan, John chapter 19, verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Yahushua, they took his garments. Uh-oh. They took his garments and they made four parts. To every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam. It was woven from top throughout. It was the high priest's cloak. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it. But they cast lots for it to see whose it should be, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which said, they parted my clothes among them, and my robe they did cast lots for. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Let us not tear it. Because it's the high priest's tunic and it cannot be torn. Otherwise, Yahushua's priesthood would be nullified and he hasn't sat down yet. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 9. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I come to do your will, O Yahuwah. He takes away the first sacrificial system that he may establish the second. He takes away the first temple that he may establish the second. He takes away the first priesthood that he may establish the second. This isn't talking about covenant. Yeshua didn't come so that he could die so that he could change the dietary requirements. That's got nothing to do with redemption. Redemption has got everything to do with three things that got transferred to the higher order. Priesthood, temple, sacrifice. That's what changed. Not the Sabbaths. Sabbath has got nothing to do with your redemption. The dietary requirements have got nothing to do with your redemption and the feasts of Yahuwah have nothing to do with your redemption but the sacrifice the temple and the priesthood they do that's what changes the sabbath doesn't change it doesn't go away the dietary requirements don't go away and the feasts and festivals of Yahuwah don't go away there forever they stand it's just that he transferred 
the three to a higher order. The temple made with stones now goes to the living stones. The sacrifice of the animals now is the living sacrifice that Yahusha gave on himself. And now we are to be living sacrifice. And what? Finally, the priesthood transcends from a nation with a priest to a nation of Malkitzedic priests back to the Exodus 19.4 covenant betrothal when Israel said, yes, all that you said we will do. That's what we get. It's amazing. It's amazing as we look into this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I come to do your will, O Yahweh. He takes away the first sacrificial system, priesthood and temple, that he may establish the second sacrificial system, temple and priesthood. But that desire we are now holy, Kadosh, through the offering of the body of Yahushua Hamashiach once and for all. And every Kohen, every priest stands daily serving and offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for the sins, Leolam Vayed, forever and ever, sat down at the right hand of Yahweh, waiting from then on until his enemies were made his footstools. Now he's quoting the one and only Malkizedic text in the entire Old Testament apart from Genesis 14. The high priest can only sit down once the sacrifice is fully consumed. As high priest, he has to stand until the sacrifice is completed. Yahushua cannot sit down until it is finished. Luke chapter 7 verse 28. For I say unto you, among those who are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Immerser. But he that is least in the kingdom of Yahuwah is greater than him. Did you get that? That is huge. He who is least in the kingdom of Malkitzedek is greater than he who is greatest of the Levitical. He who is least in the kingdom of Malkitzedek is greater than he who is greatest of the Levitical, which was John the Immerser. It's about the transference of priesthood and walking in the prophetic, apostolic authority and anointing. The least of Malkitzedek is greater than a prophet from Levi. You see, the Malkitzedek is the narrow way that leads to life. The narrow way that leads to life. And we'll close with this. You see, the institutionalized church has accepted pagan syncretism and lawlessness as their way to enlightenment. We do not accept that. The Hebrew roots and the messianics claim Torah observance out of one side of their mouth, 
yet they fail to see that they're not keeping Torah on the other. They're just picking and choosing which Torah commandments to encircle and to encamp around, which they would then levy upon the people. Whilst all the time rejecting a whole slew of commandments based upon the errant theology of waiting for the Jews to build a temple. Then they'll start keeping the commandments too. Those ones about sacrifice and altar. Even though there's no provision in Torah for that kind of errant theology. You see, picking and choosing commandments based upon consensus, is a trait that was inherited from the institutionalized church that has been carried over into the Hebrew roots and the Messianic movement. It's disingenuous at best. At worst, it's an outright lie. You see, Yahusha, as the Malkit Zedek, he brings us the narrow way that leads to life. We are not to syncretize pagan love feasts into the faith, and we are not to be lawless. But we're also not to go over and try and dress up and pretend that we're Jewish and to get into everything Jewish and go rah, 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 Torah, 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 being undiscerning with our application of Torah, speaking Torah observance out of the side of our mouth, when in reality we're just picking and choosing which commandments to keep today until the Jews build a temple, and then we'll really start to keep the Torah commandments. So convenient theology, but it is not got one provision in Torah that you can do that. Not one provision in Torah that says that you delay in building Yahweh's house, that you delay in offering your sacrifice. So either do it all or stop being double-minded and talking out of the side of your mouth while you levy Torah on the people of Yahweh, yet you are undiscerning in how to apply it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 gives us clarity on how we are to walk with Yahweh. Study, firstly, to show yourself approved. Don't listen to the talking heads, but study to show yourself approved. Unto a lower, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of Torah. Psalm 119 clearly tells us that Yahweh's truth is his Torah. They are synonymous terms. We are to rightly divide the word of Torah between the transference of priesthoods. We need to recognize the impending change that was promised in Torah itself. That what? The scepter shall not depart from Judah until, meaning a change Shiloh comes. Well, he has come and he has transferred Torah unto himself that we are now to do the Torah of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the Torah of Aaron. It's 
return to the book of the covenant or what Jeremiah prophesies as the new covenant, which is Torah, no longer written on tablets of stone representing a stony heart, but covenant fidelity Torah written on your flesh that you can do it, that you can do it. We are to keep the Torah of Abraham. Galatians 3, it's book of the covenant Torah, Genesis 1-1 through Exodus chapter 24 verse 12, the Sabbath, the feasts, and a healthy biblical diet. That's what's for Yahweh's people. So there's two broad roads, syncretism and lawlessness, and then messianic Hebrew roots, undiscerning, no division of Torah, saying Torah out of one side of the mouth, yet not applying it in its fullness because they don't understand there's a right dividing point and it's all about the transference of priesthood. So you can walk in the Torah of Abraham, Galatians (coughs) chapter 3. I'll finish up with these few scriptures. Hebrews 9.10, the book of the law in context, the book of the law which was added In Exodus 24, verse 12, because of the sin of the golden calf, Exodus 32, the book of the law consists of carnal commandments that were imposed, never agreed to, imposed upon them until the Malkitzedek would come, the time of Reformation. Galatians 3.19, wherefore then serveth the book of the law? It was added because of the transgressions of the golden calf until the seed should come to whom the covenants of promise, Ephesians 2.12, were made. Galatians 3, verse 23. We were kept under guard from, but we were kept under guard by the book of the law, kept for the faith which would be revealed afterward. Therefore, the book of the law was our slave master to bring us to Malkitzedek that we might be just as if we'd never sinned, justification by faith to the covenant. But once we're in the covenants of promise by faith, we are no longer under the book of the law tutor. You see, we are not saved through the Malkitzedek to go back back under the mediation of the book of the law, we are saved to walk in royal covenant Torah, which is the Malkitzedic ordinations. Galatians 2 verse 21. For if righteousness comes by the book of the law, then Messiah died in vain. You see, we are no longer aliens. We're not supposed to be strangers from the Malkitzedic Book of the Covenant, the Torah commandments of promise. We have hope and we know that Yahweh, he is with us. He is with us. And as the nations rage and they imagine a vain thing and you see everything that's going on in Europe, you see what's gone on in eastern Oregon you can understand that ultimately there is going to be an awakening of the priesthood and there is going to be a war of the kings 
But ultimately, it's the Zedek, Yahusha, that will come and bring peace when there has been a battle between the kings of the earth. And that's where we're at right now. We're about to get into the battle of the kings of the earth. And it is only when the Zedek shows up and rescues the descendants of Abraham that there will be peace. But first of all, like the Romans said, if you want peace, you have to prepare for war. Questions, comments? Anybody at all? Yes. The question was, is that why Esau is trying to kill off as many people as they, are, as they can? Well, it is. It's a war between the seeds. It truly is because Ishmael got bypassed in the Zedek, and it went to Isaac and then it continued to go down. And now you and I are recipients of the covenants of promise, whereas the seed of Ishmael is recipients of the greatest deception that has come upon mankind, even so much so that President Obama this week decided that he would go to a mosque, a mosque that speaks great evil and many, many jihad verses, and he went and spoke and capitulated to them. When he went into a church, he made sure that all the Bibles were removed, but when he goes into the mosque and all the White House staff chairs, there's a Quran, a Quran, a Quran, and a Quran. And then he misquotes the Quran, twists the Quran, and then he lies about American history because people don't even realize that the first war that this nation went and was a part of was a war against Islam and the Mohammedans. So has the Mohammedan been a part of American culture since its inception? Yes. Now let's bring truth and clarity to that statement. Yes, America has been at war with Islam since its inception with the Barbary Coast Wars. Their pirates always have been pirates. And the biggest deception is that there are more African Americans that are leaving the faith and converting to Islam than any people know. Because the African Americans haven't been told the truth about slavery. You see, slavery was invented by Islam. The term slavery comes from the Slavic nations. Islam went up to the Slavic nations, Yugoslavia, Slovenia, and various Slavic nations, and they captured and enslaved people. And people say, well, the white man brought the black man over to America. Do you really think that Portuguese ship merchants and British ship merchants would get off their captain ships and go running around Africa? Are you really that insane, not understanding the hierarchy of maritime law? They docked 
up the Western African ports, and it was the Mohammedans that were going around trapping and enslaving the Africans and bringing them to the coastal ports and selling them to the British and the Portuguese who then brought them over here. The biggest slavers ever are Islam still to this day. More African Americans were enslaved by Islam And then the English and the Portuguese and the Dutch brought them over to America, but they would never have been able to get them to the ships if it wasn't for the Mohammedans. That's the truth. The number one slaving nation in the world today, we are in bed with Saudi Arabia. This nation has been sold out while we were sleeping. While we were sleeping while we were sleeping in the middle of the night. That had nothing to do with this week's teaching. <laughs> Shalom and good night. <laughs> we have one more question oh, okay. uh, from an email. Uh, it says, uh, when plundering from the New World Order, we give a tenth to the Lord. Uh, the church would say, give it to them. What are your thoughts on how we give a tenth uh, to the Lord? Well, first and foremost, you want to save up so that you can attend Sukkot. That's a, that's a big part. You want to save up, that, you want to save up the Maaseh, the, the tenth, so that you can afford to make provision to go to Sukkot, so that you can be with the brethren. That's very important. And then you want to be able to support where you're being fed. You want to support the ministry where you're being fed. And you also want to be... Um, a, a witness to others. So it really is something that you have to take to prayer and supplication. So, but that's what I see definitely, you know, where people don't plan for Sukkot, I always wonder what's going on there. So we should come together and, um, for the Feast of Yahuwah and be able to do those things together. Amen. Yes. Well, you know, the question is, is was it a good thing that the African-Americans were bought, brought to America? You know, people could argue either way. I mean, I go back, and I just had this conversation last night, and I've said this before, we are all living on a reservation. We are living on a reservation. The laws that we are all now held to, these are reservation laws that the First Nations were put on. It was a trial. We ultimately ultimately capitulated to greed, lust, and wickedness because the Europeans were given a charge, I believe, to come to this land and give the greatest gift of all to those, Romans 1, that were worshipping the created things instead of the creator. The First Nations, many were worshipping the created things, not the creator. We had a charge to come to this nation in shalom and give the gift of the Son. And in return, we were supposed to receive the gift of animal husbandry, land stewardship, and loving your neighbor. Because there's no other people on the face of the planet who knew how to love their neighbor more than the First Nations people. And many people will say, well, the Comanches they were at war with the Apaches and the Sioux. Ah, but they were other nations in their thinking. 
Yes, they were other nations. They loved their nation, their neighbors. Within those villages that were camped by the rivers as they camped by winter, they loved their children. They loved the sick. They loved the elderly. They loved the neighbor. We were supposed to understand how to love our neighbors from the First Nations. We were supposed to understand land um, stewardship and animal husbandry. And in return, we were supposed to give the biggest gift, which was the gift of the sun. But we got so greedy, we started to see those hills of gold and the mineral and land deposits. And that's when everything went sideways. And I mean, that's just uh, my, my opinion, my reading of history. And I believe that the First Nations people, African Americans, have a huge part as we all work as Jacob's multicolored coat to come together in the priesthood. There is neither creed or color, tribe, but we are all one in Messiah as long as we become unshackled. From the new world order. We come unshackled from Islam. And we come unshackled from lawlessness and pagan syncretism. Amen? Amen.